Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sarah Peck, and this is the Startup Pregnant Podcast. One of the hardest things about fertility and parenting and pregnancy is this idea, this all-pervading idea that we can just do anything we want if we try hard enough. The problem with that is that it can be devastating when things don't turn out the way that you expected. Lucy Nicely, who is our guest on the show today, is a critically acclaimed and award-winning comic creator. She lives in Chicago and specializes in personal, confessional, graphic novels, and travelogues. She has published a number of books like French Milk, which is a book that documents a six-week trip she and her mother took to Paris when they were each facing a milestone birthday. She has a comics book called Relish, My Life in the Kitchen, and also a travelogue called An Age of License. Another travelogue she has written is called Displacement, which follows her along an elderly tour aboard a cruise ship with her grandparents. What caught my attention, however, was the book that she recently wrote called Kid Gloves, Nine Months of Careful Chaos. In it, I flipped open the cover, and right there it said, if you work hard enough, if you want it enough, if you are smart and talented and good enough, you can do anything except get pregnant. Her whole life, Lucy nicely wanted to be a mother. But when it was finally the perfect time, conceiving turned out to be harder than anything she'd ever attempted. Fertility problems were followed by miscarriages, and her eventual successful pregnancy was plagued by health issues and led to a dramatic near-death experience during labor and delivery. The book is funny and terrifying and informative and useful and real and raw. And I read through it so fast. And I reached out and I said, I would love for you to come on the show and tell us your story. Will you join us? She joins us today. She has an incredible story. And we also get to hear about her career in comics and how she sets up her day to get enough drawing done. If you have not checked out our mini books yet, go check them out. We have five mini books for parents, entrepreneurs, and mothers that we are making here at Startup Pregnant. We have the parenting reading list, which is if you are busy, but you want to know what books I'm reading on parenting, I do this thing where I write a little summary of every book that I've read and I take notes and you can just go read my notes. You don't have to read the whole book. From there, if there's a book that catches your interest, you can go get the books that you want, but you don't have to read every single book. I'm a big geek and I've done that for you. I also have the pregnancy reading list. Surprise, surprise. That's the same. I take a whole bunch of notes on books and I put them into one book just for you. So that's the parenting reading list and the pregnancy reading list. Both are mini books. They're short. They're not long. And you can skim them and flip them as a Kindle or a PDF or whatever way that you want to read it. I also have three other books. One of them is called Pregnancy Affirmations, and that is for people who are pregnant and want to get some good words in your mind. I reached out and interviewed a whole bunch of people and asked them for their favorite mantras and affirmations. So check that out if you want. There are two more, including the Startup Mama profiles and my favorite, Sticky Situations, which is all about how to get out of sticky situations. If you want to check out any of these mini books, go to startuppregnant.com slash mini books to check them out. 
We are releasing them throughout 2019. And if you are on our email list, you get a first preview. And I often give out coupons for free copies of these books. We've got five mini books. They're over at startuppregnant.com slash mini books. And the link is in the show notes. If you want to scroll into the show notes and check it out, or go to our website, startuppregnant.com and look for mini books and you will get them. Welcome to the Startup Pregnant Podcast, where we talk to creative leaders about what it means to be an entrepreneur and a parent. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. I am so excited to welcome you to the show. Lucy, welcome. Thank you so much. So I want to start with my favorite question. What time did you wake up this morning? And what was (laughs) the first thing that you did? I woke up at around 5 a.m. this morning. We have a leaky fireplace in our bedroom that it's been raining a lot here in Chicago this spring. And both my partner and I were woken up by the sounds of rain coming in on the fireplace. And then about 30 seconds after we were both like, ugh, the fireplace, we heard like, like this, this siren wail of my child from down the hall. <laughs> so that was it. You were up. Yep, that was that was the start of things. And then what happens next? Who gets the child? Who gets any caffeinated beverages? Like what happens next? (laughs) My partner usually goes downstairs to start coffee and my son and I snuggle in the bed for a little bit for as long as I can drag it out. You will sleep. (laughs) I'll just just hold you still. (laughs) How well does that work well? No, definitely not. He squirms until he injures me and then I get up. Oh, how old is he? He's about to turn three. Oh, happy birthday, little one. Thank you. My three-year, almost three-year-old, he'll be three next week, currently has an ear infection. He burst his eardrum. (gasps) And the side effect, I shouldn't laugh. I feel for his pain. We are doing the things we need to do. But the side effect is that he shouts at like 10x the volume. (laughs) Oh, God. So he like comes and he's like, hi, mom, where's the blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like... (laughs) Oh, we we need some antibiotics for me, not yeah. for you. <laughs> you weren't already had the volume turned up on you at age three. Like, wow. <laughs> totally. So a three-year-old at like twice the decibel level has been a lot. So also people listening, if you hear any noise in the background, he's coming <laughs> home from the doctor with my husband any minute now. So you may hear a very loud toddler in the background. Um, <laughs> just bear with us. Okay. So and then what happens? Do you Does your child go to preschool or? anywhere away from you? What does your work day look like? (laughs) He does. He goes to preschool three days a week. This is one of the days. This morning, we've been preparing because we're going to London in a short while with him. And it's his first like overseas trip. And we've been preparing it. And one of the things that we've done is last night, my partner drove out to the suburbs to buy the secondhand travel like car seat vest thing. (laughs) So it's like this, it looks like a a rocket vest, like, (laughs) like, it's really hard to describe. But it's yeah, so we tried that on him, we like briefly ate breakfast, and then he like, eats and goes. So we were like, all right, do you want to try on your vest? And he was like, yeah, we'll try on the vest. So then we put it on. And he loved it because it looked like a rocket vest. And he was like, I'm a robot and was, you know, throwing himself off the furniture in it. And we were like, oh, good. Well, it's a safety vest. So that's probably safer <laughs> than throwing himself off the furniture otherwise. And 
then there were like multiple tantrums about having to take the vest off and like use the potty and get dressed. So we got through the tantrums have ramped up in preparation for three, I think. And, I've heard um, I've heard three nagers is a thing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's been increasing. <laughs> so after like the fifth tantrum, they managed to get out the door and the preschool that my son goes to is on the way to my partner's work. So they go together and then the house is blissfully empty. And I have like a half an hour before I really sit down to work where I like sit quietly and stare into the middle distance. And it's wonderful. I was going to ask, do you have any rituals? Like I think uh, for me, one of the things is unwinding from the chaos of the morning requires a new set of mental tools than just starting a workday. What do you do? Yeah, (laughs) I mean, it's hard enough to kind of get yourself in the headspace to work when you work from home. Like I have to shut myself into my office and kind of like, okay, let's think about what we need to do today. But now that the mornings are a little more chaotic than they have been in the past, it, it, it does. It takes like a transitional half hour where I like eat crackers and stare out the window and like just sort of scroll Instagram and stuff. It's just dead space that I need now to kind of reset myself. Yes, to like re like, it's like I imagine the words are coming back together. And you're like, Oh, I can now form like two words. Seg- now I can form sentences. <laughs> almost we're almost there. <laughs> right. The ringing in my ears seems has almost died down. <laughs> totally. What does your workday look like? What do you spend your time doing? It depends on what my current main project is. Right now I'm working on a middle grade graphic novel. So I'm at the stage where I draw all the pages in pencil. So I'll eventually go over those in ink as soon as I'm finished with the pencil pages. It's about a 200 page book. And I think I'm on page like 170 something right now. So I'm closing in. And I, you know, I work from nine to four, I sit at my desk and I draw the pages and I average about, well, I'm I'm trying to average about 10 pages a day on this for the pencils, but it's a real, it's been a a lot of pages to get through. (laughs) And I I think I average about like five to six pages and that will be due in a couple weeks. And then I start the inks on that and that's what I do. I sort of do that. And on my breaks, I stare out the window and eat more crackers and <laughs> think about <laughs> what we need to do to prepare for London and my son's birthday party. And I scroll through Instagram. Trust <laughs> we all do. You know, like, <laughs> have to get back in the headspace of just being a human being. When or how did you know or decide or discover that you were going to become a comics artist? Uh, I always made comics, even when I was little, but it was just sort of fun and sketchbooks. And I had to, I wound up in college thinking that I would be a painter and thinking, oh, well, I could never do anything with these little comics that I draw. I'm, I'm going to have to choose like a serious profession, like fine arts painter, which is no more serious than any other profession. And I was in my first year of college. I was very shy. I was in a new city. I didn't really know how to connect with people. And I started taking the comics that I was doing in my lonely dorm room when I was supposed to be working on like art history homework. And I published them in the school newspaper. And I started to hear back from people who were like, oh, that comic that you wrote in the paper about sort of feeling isolated and being in a new city. And 
I felt the same when I started the school and I really appreciate you sort of putting in words. And it was this light bulb moment for me because I realized that I could use comics as a way to reach sort of through my shyness and connect to people. And it's sort of been that ever since. You, one of the quotes in this book you wrote, when we write about our lives, it's a form of time travel. Yeah, I very firmly believe that as well. I write a lot of things that are sort of going on with me right now. I, one of my favorite genres to work in is the travelogue, which is very much this very immediate storytelling technique. And it's so interesting because you can really capture what you're thinking and feeling and experiencing on these trips and look back and remember so well what that was like for you. And I feel that way about my other work as well, particularly my most recent book, Kid Gloves. I want to talk about that book. And you have a number of books, listeners, I will link them up in the show notes. And I will link up Lucy's website so you can see the different novels that she has written. This book, Kid Gloves, Nine Months of Careful Chaos, you know, we open the the first cover and you say, even on the flap, before we even begin the story, if you work hard enough, if you want it enough, if you're smart and talented and good enough, you can do anything except get pregnant. And I want to take some time to on this idea that I think is really challenging for a lot of women who are told and grown up in a world where it's like, you can do anything, you can do anything you set your mind to, and then pregnancy comes along and punches a lot of us in the face. And not only that, but it's, we're told again and again, like how to avoid getting pregnant, how to protect ourselves from getting pregnant. I don't know about you, but everything in my reproductive education classes were all about, here's how to not get pregnant. And there was nothing about, here's what happens when you do try to get pregnant. You're giving me a, like a shivers because even my husband had the same experience. He said, for my entire life, I have been <laughs> trying not to get women pregnant. Right. <laughs> like I've been told from a young age not to get girls pregnant and like, yeah, the don't do it, don't do it. The thing in the world is just feels so unnatural because you're like, ah. <laughs> it took us a couple of tries just to get through the mental hurdle of like, okay, we've agreed that we're doing this thing, but actually doing it's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> So, but but I want to hear about your story and please take as much time as you'd like because I, I have read your book, but I would love to hear from you. When did you decide to start trying to get pregnant and what was that like for you? Well, I've always wanted to be pregnant and to have a baby. It's something I was really fascinated with from an early age. And in fact, I wanted to be a midwife growing up before I got into comics instead, you know, the two related fields. So I found myself, you know, I, I volunteered for Planned Parenthood. I had a very good reproductive education growing up. I had, you know, my, a close relationship with my mother who talked about this stuff. And I considered myself very well informed when it came to this kind of thing. And I knew that I wanted to be pregnant and I wanted to have a kid. My boyfriend at the time did not want to have children. And it was a huge cloud over our whole relationship for the five years that we were together. We split up over it, in fact, at a sort of a breaking point in the relationship when we sort of said, all right, we got to cut and run because this is not going to work out. We want fundamentally different things. Neither of us believe that we should try and change the other person's opinion because they are very rational in what they want. And that's fine. So we split up for about three years. And then he sort of came around. He came around totally 
not related to me or my bad. Like we were not even together. I did not badger him. I did not try to change his opinion. He just reevaluated his life and thought, you know what, I, I do want to have kids. And if I want to have kids, I want to do it with Lucy. So we got back together. We got engaged. It was understood that we would start trying to have kids pretty soon. So it was all coming together for me at that point. And I was like, all right, I'm informed. I know what to do. I'm healthy. I'm ready for this. Like we've got a home, we've got a stable environment to bring a kid into, you know, they say there's no perfect time and there isn't, but we were like prepared as well as we could be. And then everything kind of went wrong. (laughs) I got pregnant right away, actually, but about 10 weeks in, I miscarried and it really blindsided me. I didn't know to expect it. No one had ever told me to expect it. I had always been taught, hey, if you have unprotected sex, you will have a baby. And it's like, okay, well, that's that's what I've been told again and again and again. So that's what I am going to expect. And when I was at my doctor's and they told me that I had miscarried, they were like, oh yeah, this happens in one in four pregnancies. Like not just to one in four women, but to one in four pregnancies. So it happens really frequently. And I was shocked, shocked by this information because I I thought that I was so well informed. I thought that I knew this and I was dealing with grief and pain and like bodily discomfort and, and bodily wrongness. And I was also feeling so betrayed that I I didn't know to expect that. You have in your book a, a series of miscarriage myths and and within it a section on grief too. And I want to ask you about that grief section because there's so many, like not only do we not know very much about this part of pregnancy, um, we don't tell each other about it, then there's this added layer of like, well, it's not really real, so you shouldn't feel grief for something that didn't quite happen. Can you talk about this? Yeah. And in particular, you know, we are told not to tell people about being pregnant early on, like lest something happened to you. And, you know, you're not really supposed to bring up a miscarriage in casual conversation. And I get that. But that kind of stigma isolates you in your grief. And it makes you feel like this grief is not real, or it's supposed to be kept secret and private. And it's really damaging. It's really damaging to a lot of couples that go through this. And it's, it's just uncool, you know, it's very uncool. And it's so common that people go through this. And the grief is so real. I'm, you know, I have a three year old son, and I'm still grieving for the miscarriages that I had before I got pregnant with him. And it it's trauma and it's bodily trauma while you're experiencing this grief. And it really is something that needs to be discussed more. And it's not, it's considered taboo in our society to discuss these things. And that's, I think, why a lot of it is considered not real grief, particularly because, you know, it's, it's not a born human being yet. Like you can't know them, you can't experience them on the outside yet. But it's something that as a woman, when you experience it, it's not just grief for this person that you might have known, it's grief for your body, for yourself going through this. And this horrible thing that has occurred inside you is really inseparable from yourself. Like it's something that you don't have a choice about, but it's happening in you and you don't, you can't separate yourself from it. A hundred percent. And you can't isolate. 
Like all these things are happening for women all the time. They find out they're pregnant and they go to work. They find out they've lost a baby and they go to work. They find out they've miscarried or that they have fertility problems and they go to work, right? Like there's no delineation and yet we act like there should be. Right. I mean, just the other day I was talking to someone and they were like, yeah, you know, (laughs) when I was miscarrying, I was at work. I was actively miscarrying, like bleeding out of my body and had to just pretend like everything was fine. (laughs) You think about these things where it's like this incredible pain, first of all, and then you're actually bleeding like copious amounts in out of your body. And it's this physical manifestation of this grief that you'd have to pretend doesn't exist. You have to just basically be like, I'm fine. Everything's fine. And you, you, there's one, what are they called? I want to call it a square, but like, what do you call a section of a drawing? A panel. A panel. There's one. Yep. Thank you. I don't know. No problem. There's one panel. I knew panel. exactly what you meant by square. It's fine. Okay, square is a perfectly acceptable term. I was like, I'm pointing at it, but no one can see because this is audio. But you, there's one panel where you say, I'd spent the last few months hating myself and my body and running it ragged. And it's like you capture a moment, but it's months and months and months day in and day out, like where we can just say in a sentence, and we're not even saying those sentences out loud, right, of what the experience does to us. And from what I understand, your story doesn't stop with this one miscarriage, because you you said just a few moments ago, miscarriages. Yes. So I had a second miscarriage that was much shorter this time. It was only a few days after I found out that I was pregnant. And at that point, I think we'd only been trying for like seven months. And my then OBGYN was like, well, you have to wait a year before you see a reproductive endocrinologist. And after the second miscarriage, I was like, I need help. I can't, like, I can't continue to live my life. Like, this is horrible. And I sought out um, my therapist who I had seen when my boyfriend and I had split up before and started seeing her again. And it was a really good choice. I think anyone who's going through any of this should definitely, definitely be in talk therapy at the very least. A support group is also really helpful. But she really saved me. And she was like, you know, I know they say you only go after a year, but you know, you've been trying for seven months, you've gone through these terrible miscarriages, you wouldn't keep, you know, repeating mistakes that hurt you in any other context. Like, why are you letting your doctor tell you, you know, when you can and can't see a specialist, you should just go see a specialist. And I was like, you know, what, you're right. So I saw a reproductive endocrinologist after my second miscarriage and he did, what is it called? Where they fill your, your uterus with fluid and stick a camera up there to sort of see what's going on. Ooh. And yeah, (laughs) like a balloon, (laughs) like a water balloon. And he checked it out and he, it was revealed that I had a uterine septum, which is like a stalactite in the uterus, which it's like this kind of flesh that doesn't really lend itself well to an embryo latching on essentially. So the best thing to do in that situation is to have a laparoscopic surgery where they just cut it out basically. So I had to go in for an outpatient procedure where they cut the septum out of my uterus. Oh, how long did it that take to, well, what did that feel like and how long did it take to heal? Well, it took a couple months to like schedule it. And then like, it just was a day procedure and I like recovered at home and it was fine. It was fine. And, you know, in actuality, it was so wonderful to have an answer. You know, like 90% of people who suffer from fertility problems never get an answer as to why. They just, you know, unexplained infertility. And it's so frustrating. And my friends who've gone through this are so like, 
angry that they don't have an answer. You know, there's nothing they can do to fix it. And I am one of the very lucky few that they were like, well, maybe this is it. And I was like, all right, let's fix it. And that was really wonderful to sort of have this mission now. It's like, okay, there's a problem. I'm going to fix it. All right. And then after the surgery, it took a couple months to recover. And I was very sort of like trying to be easy on myself and very forgiving of myself. And I rested and ate well and like swam every day. And, and then I got pregnant a couple months after the surgery. In the book, you talk about how other people around you can say things or even just be going through things that can be so difficult to deal with. Like uh, my friend, my good friend, Carrie, talks about this a little bit. And she's like, you know, it's really challenging when you're trying to get pregnant. And then it looks like somebody just sneezes and gets pregnant. Like they're just the sneezers. (laughs) (laughs) And you're just like, like inner, the inner, the inner rage comes out just because it's so not fair, not equal, not understandable, comprehensible. And and it's so challenging, too, because it, it can take so dang long to get pregnant for so many people. And what? it's really physical. It's this physical grief that you're feeling. You know, it's it's not only hormonal. It's like this biological urge that you are experiencing. And when you see other people sort of achieve that, and of course, you have kind of this negativity bias where everyone you meet is pregnant and you're like, why is this happening? What's going on with my life right now? It's a physical pain. What did you do to cope or to make it through? Like, did you try to avoid other pregnant ladies? And (laughs) seriously, though, also, like, for people who do get pregnant, what can they do to support or what can we do all to support each other? Is it just really fucking painful and it's hard to deal with? I don't have a good answer, but hopefully you do. (laughs) I mean, it is really fucking hard to deal with and painful. And it's, it's something that so many people have gone through that I was really lucky after I went through my miscarriages and I started to talk about it, it seemed like everyone I had ever met had experienced something similar. And all of a sudden these stories came out of the woodwork and everyone had something to offer. And that was so incredibly healing for me to hear these other stories of survival and recovery and, you know, how fucking hard it is. And to get that empathy from friends and relatives who had gone through something similar was just the only thing that got me through that period of time, other than like, you know, my partner being nice to me and stuff, like my mom coming <laughs> to take care of me and stuff. But like the thing that really pulled me out of it was hearing these stories. And that's why, you know, I re- it's a big part of why I wanted to write this book and tell this story and share my own story in the hopes that it helps somebody else pull themselves out of it. Yeah, I've sent it to a number of people the link and the actual book, because I don't think we have enough stories out there of infertility, miscarriage, pregnancy trauma, all of those things that people need to see other people that look like them. Yeah. So tell us about pregnancy. Was it a, this is a leading question, but was it a walk in the park once you got pregnant? Oh, Oh, pregnancy. Yeah. It was totally the worst experience of my bodily life. It was, no, I mean, like I said, I was like healthy and I'm relatively young and I swam a mile every day and I, you know, I really took care of myself and pregnancy like hit me over the head like an anvil. It was crazy. And it was this thing that I had yearned for and I'd wanted so much. And I was also terrified of losing it. I was terrified the whole first trimester. I was just in this state of perpetual terror And I was also in a state of perpetual, excruciating nausea, (laughs) just 
unbelievable. I don't like to call it morning sickness because it was all day and all night. And it was so violent. And I was shocked by how incredibly like debilitating it was. I couldn't do anything for three months. Yeah. Except lie on the bathroom floor and throw up. <laughs> what did you do about work or deadlines or like the pages? Did you have pages due? And how did you deal with all of that? What did I do? I was finishing up my book about the wedding industry when this was going down. And I had a really wonderfully understanding editor who was herself pregnant at the time. And I remember I, you know, I didn't want to tell anyone that I was in the early stages of pregnancy at that point. So I told everyone that I had the flu really badly. And that lasted three months. I was, yeah, it's just, it's the really bad flu. It's really bad. <laughs> Terrible flu. I can't. I can't so I'm laughing, but it's not funny because it's, like, just, it's like having the flu for three months. That's like how bad it is. Like a stomach flu for three months. And I, I don't understand how, I mean, I do understand how people lived through this back in the day. They died. They died of it. Like Charlotte Bronte died of pregnancy sickness. And you just, people died of this. And I lay there and stared into the abyss of Netflix for three months. And like, I don't understand why you don't get nine months off for pregnancy. I just don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe like one hello during the second trimester. Yep. Like, mm -hmm. I'm still here. I'll be, it'll be a bit. You may come to wait upon me <laughs> and then leave. <laughs> Yes, please. Please Are you bring Girl Scout food? cookies yeah. when you come and then leave them and go away. That's all um, I am capable of. That or clean my house. You, you pick. Oh, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Perfect. Wow. Yes. And I heard, I do not, I have not verified this, but I have heard that the person who named it morning sickness was a man who only saw his wife in the mornings. <laughs> Perfect. Yep. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Right. And it's like, <laughs> actually, it lasts the rest of the time. But <laughs> so pregnancy was hard, harder than you had been told or imagined. How were the second and third trimesters by comparison? So when you hit the second trimester, it's a little more stable in terms of keeping the pregnancy. So at least the terror sort of notched down a level, which was very nice. After I hit like 13 weeks, I stopped violently throwing up every day. But I got, you know, they say that you're supposed to get like this burst of energy and you're super like, okay, in your second trimester. And I had to like sleep all day. And I was like recovering from the first trimester, I think I just slept through my whole second trimester. I just, I had to take like a four hour nap every day. And like, thank God, I'm a cartoonist who like works from home and have a very understanding editorial relationship. And I, I basically just had to take this time off. I had just finished my book, I handed in all the pages. And I was like, good day to you. I, I'm like taking some time off. And fortunately, that's fine. Once you've handed a book in you, you sort of just have to answer some emails about the cover, and then you're like done. But I had I like couldn't work, I had to sleep all day. And right about then, my partner really started to sort of sink into the pits of pre-fatherhood anxiety. Yeah. So I was coming out of the like early trimester anxiety, and he was just sinking into the mire of pre-parenthood. Can you talk about that? Because that's not something that people talk about either. Yeah, I think it's, of course, for women, particularly taboo to talk about 
parental fear and anxiety and like reluctance to become a parent in any way because you you don't you don't want to sound like an unfit mother of course but my partner is well now he's a designer but he has an engineering degree and he's like a very mathematical methodical person and he sort of comes at everything with a list of all of the terrible things that can go wrong <laughs> and going into parenthood was no different. And remember, this is the person that for his entire life, he didn't want to have children. So all of a sudden, he like changed his mind, got married, started trying to have a kid dealt with a wife who was like going crazy, because she'd had two miscarriages and had to have surgery. And then like, okay, then we're pregnant, the kid is coming, like, it's definitely gonna happen, or so we think. And like, here's all the things that now could go wrong. So he really started to freak out. He just couldn't sleep. And he was just unable to talk about it. And he was consumed with this anxiety. And meanwhile, I was like, I'm just glad I'm not throwing up at this very moment. This is wonderful. I love this. Also, I'm asleep. So I just like couldn't really be there for him. I was just so relieved that the pregnancy was healthy so far and that I was not in agony and I was mostly just tired. <laughs> so he really sort of went through this pretty much on his own. I feel I feel for him and for you and have experienced similar threads. There's so little said about not just the mothers, but also the co-parents and the partners and all the emotional feelings that they're going through being the supportive infrastructure and then how taxing it can be on the whole family unit. And and then there's less support for everyone all around because everybody needs more help. Right. Oh. And no one's talking about what they're going through. And <laughs> right. It's just a big quagmire. <laughs> well said. Well, listeners, I have, I have some of these insights because I have read her book already. So I am asking you leading questions, but like, tell us about, about the third trimester or the, or the, the birth and like, <laughs> The whole thing. So when I hit my third trimester, I got really big, really quickly. My hands and feet swelled up like overnight. I got my wedding ring trapped on my finger and had to perform like a series of ridiculous rituals to try and get it off. I started getting headaches and blurred vision and dizzy. And, you know, anyone who's seen any show on the BBC could probably diagnose me from just this list. But I would go into my obstetrician and I would say, hey, symptom, symptom, symptom. And he would go, oh, yeah, you know, first time parent, like, welcome to the warmer months of being pregnant. And he would just sort of shrug it off. And as somebody who'd like gone through medical drama early on in the pregnancy trying to get pregnant, I was like, okay, I'm probably overreacting. I'm sure it's fine. I don't want to make a big deal out of it. It's probably cool. <laughs> But my symptoms got worse and I started, I was like really thirsty. I would drink gallons of water a day. I just sort of, I couldn't move. I was really uncomfortable. I had to stop swimming because my my maternity swimsuit wouldn't even fit over my stomach. And like my mom showed up to come help me and she was like, holy crap, are you sure it's not twins? And I'm like, you are not allowed to say that to oh, me. No. <laughs> like, get right back on that plane and get out of here. But I, I was like, I was huge. And all of these symptoms are totally textbook symptoms for preeclampsia. And I definitely had it. I told my pediatrician that I was, or sorry, my obstetrician that I was 
worried that I might have it. Like I, Lady Sybil had died from this. Like I wanted to make sure. And he was like, no, no, no. Your blood pressure, which we take every appointment is within the norm. But what he wasn't taking into account was the fact that my blood pressure was lower than usual before I got pregnant. So to have it be in the higher end of the normal scale during pregnancy was extremely elevated for me. So he kind of shrugged it off just because doctors don't always listen to women and they don't always look beyond the normal statistics. And I'm sure he deals with a lot of first time mothers that have concerns. And he knew that I was more anxious than the average first time mother because of my early pregnancy troubles. So I think he really dismissed these concerns because of those things. I'm not making excuses for him because he sucked, (laughs) (laughs) but I had preeclampsia. I was in agony. Uh, Partway through my third trimester, I developed this horrible pain under my right rib, like right at the top of the rib. And when I told my doctor about it, he was like, oh, that's the baby kicking you. And I was like, this is not that, but okay, all right, I guess it's the baby kicking me, like, okay. What it was, was my gallbladder failing. (laughs) And I had developed this terrible pain because of preeclampsia leading to like organ distress. So as my due date drew nearer, I was at that point very desperate to have the baby and like resume my life living in a body that wasn't full of pains and aches and like gallons of water at all time. So I was like counting down to the due date. And as we know, if you have (laughs) experienced this, babies never come on their due dates and the due date sailed right past. And a week later, I was still pregnant and I was begging my OBGYN to please do something to help me. And he was like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to, it's going to be fine. So a little more than a week after my due date, I started to go into labor and my labor lasted a really long time. And I never really started to engage. I never really dilated. Again, this is a pretty typical symptom of preeclampsia, but nobody was saying those words at this point. So uh, I was in the hospital. I got an epidural. Halfway through the labor, the epidural failed on one side of my body. So I was just like, half of me was just in agony. I had been in labor at that point for like 40 hours. I hadn't slept. I hadn't eaten. I was exhausted. And because of the preeclampsia, I was particularly like cumbersome and (laughs) uncomfortable. And at that point, they sort of made the call, okay, I think think we should maybe consider a C-section. And as I signed the form, the baby went into distress. My body started having a seizure and I had to be called in for a crash C-section. Was that diagnosed eclampsia then? It was. Well, yes, it was. They don't like to diagnose it after they deliver the baby because then they're like, oh, it's it's probably cleared all that up. And in most cases with eclampsia, delivering will solve the problem. In my case, what happened was they pulled my son out of me. I had multiple seizures on the table. I lost half the blood in my body and they couldn't stop the bleeding for a really long time. And That's also very typical with eclampsia. But at that point, they were like, well, it could have been like the surgery that she'd had before she got pregnant. It could be the size of the baby. He was like nine pounds, two ounces or something. All these things. And he was fine, by the way. Like they pulled him out and he like 
he was wearing his umbilical cord as like a, a corset <laughs> and he was just like, don't I, I'm, I'm very comfortable here <laughs> in my, my, with my feather boa with my cord. Like he just, he was like wrapped around it three million times, but he was totally fine. But I went into a coma and I was in the ICU for I think a day and a half. And then I was out cold for three days total they had to give me magnesium and two blood transfers. And when I woke up, I was still really sick. I couldn't stop throwing up and I couldn't see and I had this horrible headache. My vision was all blurry. So that's a hell of a way to start parenthood, <laughs> to be kind of unable to even hold your baby, really, let alone try to like nurse them or stay up with them or change their diaper. And so I was in bad shape. And they were like, well, we delivered the baby, so you're probably fine. Okay, go home. And they sent me home in that state where I couldn't stop throwing up and I couldn't see and I was having horrible headaches and, you know, I'd lost all this blood and I was really weak and I had this emergency surgery. So like extreme bodily trauma and, you know, 24 hours later ended up back in the emergency room. I, didn't you write that you had to like, like convince your, I think your partner or someone you said, like, I need to go back. Am I remembering that correctly? They had to convince me. Oh, oh. Okay. <laughs> I was so, at that point, I was just so traumatized by my experience at the hospital and like telling people like, this is what I'm experiencing and having them dismiss it that I was like, I don't want to go back to the hospital. It's like a waste of everybody's time. I just want to be here like with the baby trying to like be a functional person. And then I would like fall down <laughs> and <laughs> be unable to see. And they were like, well, this is not working. So my mother and my partner had to like talk me into going back. I, the last place I wanted to be was back at the hospital. It was the, the scary place where my baby had almost died and I had almost died. And then we had to go back there and wait in the waiting room for like eight hours. Oh my God. Lucy, I just, I, reading this book made me cry. And then like, you're telling it now, I just muted myself because I welled up into tears. I am so sorry. It's a brutal experience. And so many people go through this and, you know, women of color go through this so much more than white women. Oh my God. Yeah. They're not listened to way more than I am. I was in like the best hospital in the Midwest. I'm white. I'm healthy. You know, I'm, I'm like average weight. And, you know, after this experience, when I was like, wow, I almost died because of medical negligence, it really opened my eyes to like, oh my God, had, had I been a brown person, had I been overweight, had I, you know, had a, some kind of pre-existing condition, they would have been even more dismissive and I would have probably died. Oh, it's giving me like angry chills, crying, like all the experiences. Because you're pregnant for the first time and you don't know, like, is this normal or not? And you look to your doctor and you ask, like, is this like, here's a thing that feels everything in my body is telling me that this doesn't feel great. And they're like, that's just normal. And it's squishy and dismissive and, and fuzzy. Because you know, and you knew your normal blood pressure, and you're like, no, this seems too high. And they can look at a chart and be like, well, it's within range. So, and this don't even look at you. Right. They look at the chart. It's mad. It's infuriating. I know. And there's this, I get it that doctors are dealing now with this information age where people can Google these things. And, you know, I was right there with them, all the other first time moms Googling, like, okay, what are these symptoms? Oh my God, I'm dying. I have, I'm dying of preeclampsia. And I get it that doctors don't want all these first time moms overreacting and panicking and they want to reassure people, but it's just, 
I mean, in the U.S., we have the highest levels of maternity mor- maternal mortality rate of any developed nation in the world, and it's unacceptable. It's unacceptable that the doctor's irritation with patient's ability to Google would outweigh their attention to what the patient is saying. And the system is broken, too, because there's they don't have enough time. I read somewhere that like oh, yeah. they only have six minutes on average in some places for your prenatal phase. How can you get the information you need in six minutes? That's why right. we're Googling, right? Like it's all <laughs> you can't. We need more time to listen and understand. And and the education piece is, is so lacking. It is. It's so frustrating, too, because you have there's this well of human knowledge. This has been going on for as long as human beings have been alive. And you're only privy to this one doctor telling you their medical opinion. And, you know, there's this whole internet wild west, of course, but it's, it would be so wonderful if we could harness the knowledge of previous generations of other people who've gone through this. If I just had like a group of women who were also pregnant, who were saying like, oh, that's not normal. It would have given me the validation I needed to go to my doctor and be like, you know what, I don't think this is normal. And we don't get it till too late. And then afterwards, you're like, well, I was, now I know I can connect the dots. I had all of those pieces of information. And I told you every time and I was dismissed. But like, now I had to go into a coma because of this. It's insane. How are you now, almost three years later? Like, do you feel like you have recovered mentally, Um, emotionally, spiritually, (laughs) physically? (laughs) So a year after I gave birth, I was hospitalized again because my gallbladder finally gave out and I had to have it removed in an emergency surgery. And I got pancreatitis, which is incredibly painful. And this was all because of the trauma that my body endured from this difficult pregnancy and this difficult birth. And so I was re-traumatized a year later, like almost exactly to the day. And then I was like, well, this is just my life now. I've like permanently damaged myself from having a baby. And it's like the the joy of my life, my my wonderful son who is healthy and happy and wonderful and smart and great. But I gave up my I like I'm done. My body is just permanently damaged. I'll never be whole again. Like that was the price that I paid for becoming a parent and experiencing pregnancy. And it's so sad to have lost any kind of happiness about my pride, like any kind of nostalgia for it, any kind of confidence in my body's ability to do things. And it really, really struck a blow because I was, you know, it was like barely recovered after a year where I was like, I know how to breastfeed on my own now. I, I'm, my body is doing something right. And then it was like, nope, hospital, like <laughs> extreme surgery. You can't breastfeed anymore because your body has stopped making milk in this trauma. And it's like, oh, okay, well, all right, I can't do anything and I will never trust my body again. And it's, It's awful because this happens to so many people that go through traumatic births where they're like, well, my body is just, it doesn't do what it's supposed to do, I guess. It's terrible. It's terrible that that gets taken away from you. So three years on, I'm like, recovered? (laughs) You know, I'm never going to recover fully from the trauma. But three years out, I feel like my body is my own again and that I can like trust it to do things and, and to be healthy. But it's scary because that trauma really stays with you even after three years of like therapy about it and, you know, working through the trauma and meeting with other survivors of traumatic births and studying and researching a great deal about this stuff. 
I'm still like, you know, I get a headache and it brings me back to having this undiagnosed preeclampsia. And I'm like, oh God, is it coming back for some reason? Like, why, why do I have a headache right now? I have to explain it away right away. And of course my partner wonderfully is there to be like, oh, because our kid woke us up at 4am this morning. And that's why you have a headache. If you're not dying. I switched out your coffee for decaf. That's why you have a headache. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. "Ah!" (laughs) So, you know, it's just one of those things that every other person in the world is dealing with their own traumas, bodily or otherwise, reproductive or otherwise. And it's a whole world that a lot of people aren't privy to. And that's another reason why I really wanted to write this book. Mm -hmm. It's so it's I think it's so much more common than people even think it is, because one of the experiences of aging is going to be something in your body doesn't do the thing it did anymore. Right? Not to the degree with which your story like that's just oh capital my my therapist calls things capital t trauma and little t trauma <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know that's capital t trauma and i have in my notes here some things to ask you one of them is about deciding on on having one kid mhm can mm-hmm. you talk about that well <laughs> you just heard the whole thing that we went through i'm an only child myself and as an only child i I really romanticize the idea of siblings. My partner has four, three siblings, sorry. <laughs> There's four of them total. There's three siblings and they're very close and I'm lucky to be part of those relationships now, but I don't have any siblings of my own and it was something I wanted. I wanted for myself and I wanted for my son, but I also want him to have a healthy, healthy happy mother and I think that might be more important than giving him a sibling. And I know that I couldn't go through it again without dying or losing my mind or both. And I couldn't put my husband through that again. I couldn't put my son through the thought of losing me. And it's just, you know, those are all the terrible reasons, but there are a lot of good reasons, of course, to have one kid. I'm very happy and close with my parents. Recent studies (laughs) have revealed that only children tend to excel in school and they tend to do better in terms of extracurricular things because their parents have a lot of attention to give to them. And it, it makes sense. And not to take anything away from kids with siblings, but there are definite benefits to being an only child. And I can appreciate them now as an adult that I have this kind of, you know, adopted family that I I collected siblings to be my friends. And it's something that I think having a mom, having a parent that is an only child would have helped me. And I hope that having a mom that's an only child will help my son. But in the future, who knows, we might foster, we might adopt. It's something we've considered. But we're done with this broke-ass baby factory. His <laughs> <laughs> uterus is closed. Yeah, and my mom's always like, what about a surrogate? And I'm like, there's a lot of kids that need homes out there. Kim K can to- do that. Yeah. Like, and then a lot of money to get somebody to go through that. It's There's no amount of money that's worth it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Lucy, this is, I have like now a thousand more questions I could ask you, (laughs) but I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your whole story and for being so open and honest. And listeners, if you want to read the book, it is fabulous. It is 
a picture book. It has drawings. It is a graphic <laughs> novel. It is beautiful. It's so easy to read. It has her story and then these little segments where she breaks down myths or facts or gives you information, which I just adore, as you know, by listening to this podcast. So you can find it. I'll link it in the show notes. It's called Kid Gloves, Nine Months of Careful Chaos. Lucy, where can people find you on the internet and the social webs to say only nice things? Listeners, you're only allowed to say nice things. <laughs> only nice things. There's a few places. The easiest way is to go to my website, which you can get to by going to stoppayingattention.com. My last name is spelled K-N-I-S-L-E-Y, and it's pronounced nicely. The silent K really throws people off. So you can also go to lucynicely.com, but it's easier to spell the other thing. I have an Instagram page that I update with a lot of comics about my son and also my cat. And I'm on Twitter occasionally. <laughs> and you can find my books, of course, at your local library or bookshop. That is my favorite place for you to buy them or acquire them. And if you absolutely must, you can buy them online. <laughs> on, uh, Amazon or IndieBound is a really great alternative. Ooh, thank you for that. And I said graphic novel, but is that an incorrect phrase? It's fine. It's a great umbrella term. I often refer to them as graphic novels. I've heard them referred to graphic memoirs, and I've heard them as collections of graphic essays. So it's, it's fine. They're comic books. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're words and pictures. Words and pictures. They're books. I love that. Nicely. I love that. I really torment people sometimes when I tell them my last name, Peck. I'm like, P is in pterodactyl, E is in Euclid, <laughs> C is in czar, and K is in knife. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> we'll end there. Thank you so much, Lucy. My pleasure, Sarah. Thank you. Everyone, if you enjoyed that interview as much as I did, I want to take just a minute to tell you about a couple of episodes that you might also enjoy. Go back through our archives and take a look for episode number 104. We talked to Vanessa Van Edwards, who is the best-selling author of the book Captivate, all about her experience transitioning to motherhood and those first few weeks of parenting and what nobody tells you. That's episode number 104. You can find our episodes by going into your browser and typing startuppregnant.com slash 104 for the episode number, and it'll take you right there. I also think you might enjoy episode 94 with Kimberly Ann Johnson, who is the author of The Fourth Trimester, who also talks about this journey into the postpartum period and new motherhood. And if you want to hear my story a little bit more, I recorded a series of episodes with Carrie Fortin on my journey into having a second baby. And I recorded the experiences, the good, the bad, the ugly, the uncertain, the confusing, the overwhelming, all of them in a series of episodes in the 80s. So check out episode number 81, where we talk about what it's like to talk about the really hard things. And episode number 86 where we talk about how I prepared for maternity leave and how she prepared for maternity leave because that is a particularly challenging puzzle for new entrepreneurs and female entrepreneurs in a country that doesn't have much in the way of maternity leave policy or protection. So the episodes that I recommend you go check out are 81, 86, 94 and 104. If you are a longtime listener and you've been listening to them straight through, then I will see you on the next episode. 
But if you are new here, you can find the links in your podcast show notes. You can type them into your browser, just startuppregnant.com slash the episode number. And they're always three digits. So it's 001 or 002 or 104. I knew that we would get to at least 100 episodes. I do not know if we will get to 1000 episodes. That seems daunting right now, but we will see. Or you can just scroll through and search on your podcast player for these episodes. The episode numbers are in the show notes and you can find them if you scroll through. And you know, I always say this and I mean it. Leave us a review on iTunes if you like our show. It takes a few seconds and it really does help us a lot. If you want more of what we're talking about, go over to startuppregnant.com and get on our email list. We send out a weekly newsletter with time-saving tips for parents and entrepreneurs. And I always include a weekly gadget or tool or something awesome that we've stumbled upon to help make your life just a little bit easier. And as always, you can reach out to us at hello at startuppregnant.com. We love hearing from you.